Hello, this is Congressman Jim Clyburn, and I would like to welcome you to my podcast, Clyburn Chronicles. I have always been a lover of history. I see this platform as a way to connect history with the politics of today. This is so important because as Judge Santiano once said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Each episode, my guest and I will have a conversation about the lessons of the past, the politics of the present, and how we must learn from those experiences to help shape the future. Thank you for taking time to listen, and welcome to Clyburn Chronicles. This is Jim Clyburn, and welcome once again to Clyburn Chronicles. Today, uh, we are going to be discussing uh, a very timely topic. Uh, as everybody knows, November 3rd is Election Day. And now, on that day, we are going to be met with some significant challenges. Uh, and uh, all over the country, uh, there are people working on trying to make sure uh, that people are able to cast their votes uh, in a safe and secure manner. Now, one of the people working on this is a longtime friend who represents uh, the first congressional district of North Carolina, G.K. Butterfield. Congressman G.K. Butterfield has served as United States Representative for North Carolina's First Congressional District since 2004. Uh, we often joke about the fact that he was sworn in on July 21st, 2004, a very important day in my life, uh, since that's today, uh, my birthday. Uh, and so G.K., came to Congress uh, and was sworn in on my birthday in 2004. After completing law school, Congressman Brotherfield began a 14-year career as a civil rights attorney practicing across Eastern North Carolina. During this time, he was able to develop his reputation winning several civil rights cases. As a longtime advocate on behalf of civil rights, Butterfield was appointed to be an associate justice of the North Carolina Supreme Court by Governor Mike Easley in 2001, retaining the position until 2003. He is a member of the Congressional Black Caucus, a past chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, having served as its chair from 2015 to 2017. And we're going to talk today a little bit about uh, first some of the tactics uh, that are being used to uh, suppress the vote and some of the things we feel uh, can be done uh, to not just vote, but vote securely. And we'll talk about uh, maybe a little bit of the importance of people casting their votes. So uh, let me just uh, present uh, GK, 
uh, as uh, we all call him. In fact, that's what he calls himself. Uh, and a lot of people have asked me, what does GK stand for? He kept it away from me for a long time. So I started to decide to do what my late wife would always tell me to do. Anytime I asked her a question, she would say, Google it. So I Googled it. And so I'm pleased to present now George Kenneth Butterfield. Thank GK. you. Thank you very much, Jim Clyburn. Thank you so much for allowing me to come on your podcast today and, and to be a part of Clyburn Chronicles. I like the name of that. And I know that in a former life, you were uh, involved in newspaper publication, you and your family. And so I, I know that the name Clyburn Chronicles just fits right into your, your legacy and right into your personality. And so thank you very much. Uh, uh, you're absolutely right, Jim. I came to Congress 16 years ago on your birthday. Uh, and I know you are one who likes to celebrate birthdays, uh, but I always tell my friends that birthdays should be more about the parents than about the child, uh, because it was your mother that uh, gave birth to you on that day and your father, uh, and you had very little to do with it. But I know that July 21st is, is an important day in your life, so thank you. Uh, one of the reasons uh, Jim Clyburn and I have bonded and, and become uh, very dear friends over the years not just because of our association as members of Congress, but because of our love of history. Uh, Jim Clyburn in, in earlier years was a, a, uh, a history teacher, uh, later an English teacher, but certainly a history teacher, and he is a student of history. And we even find ourselves at times competing with each other about historical uh, 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 events and, and the details of historical events, but I. I will confess on this podcast that his knowledge is superior to mine, but uh, I think I come in a second place. Uh, I remember when Martin King was assassinated, I asked uh, Abernathy one day if he thought he could fill the shoes of Martin Luther King, and he said, absolutely not, but I have some sandals of my own. And so uh, our, our history uh, experience is, is something that we cherish very much. I, I love to tell the story, and I will start with, with 1865. Uh, 1865 was a very significant year. Uh, some say that slavery ended on January 1st of 1863. Uh, others say that it ended with uh, Juneteenth down in Galveston, Texas. But with the legal background that I have, I like to celebrate uh, December 6th of 1865, which was the day uh, that the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution was ratified. Uh, yes, four million slaves uh, became free on that day. They, they had nothing. They had no, no property. They had very little education. They had faith in God. They had faith in family. They had faith that their government would come to their, their rescue. And then they had faith that one day uh, they would have the right to vote. And so December 6, 1865, our ancestors, four million of them became free. And they began the period of, of reconstruction. Uh, Northern whites came to the South to assist the former slaves in, in their freedom and to, to begin to construct their families and their communities. And great things began to happen. They built churches. If you go around uh, Mr. Clyburn's district and my district, you will see so many churches with cornerstones uh, that have 1865 as the founding date. Uh, and so the first thing they did was to build churches. And then they built schools. Uh, many of the schools were adjacent to the church. You would have a church and then you would have a one-room schoolhouse. And therefore, the, 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 the former slaves began to, to empower their community. And then uh, the opposition began to claim, well, they may be free, but they're not citizens. They are really not citizens. 
uh, and, and because of an earlier decision of the Supreme Court. And so the 14th Amendment was added to the Constitution, which established citizenship for the former slaves. And so now they're free, they're citizens. And then the claim was, well, they may be all of this, but they don't have the right to vote. Uh, and so in 1869, 1870, another amendment was added to the Constitution, this time the 15th Amendment. Uh, in that amendment, it, it made it absolutely clear that the former slaves had the right to vote. And so beginning in 1869, 1870, uh, hundreds of thousands of black men ages 21 and older, you had to be 21 at that time to become registered voters, and you had to be a male. Uh, females, incidentally, uh, uh, could not register. Maybe that would be another conversation for another day, but, but uh, hundreds of thousands of black men became registered voters. And it was a glorious period. The history that I've read uh, suggests that uh, uh, the, the, the voter registration rate was in excess of 90% of eligible black men became registered voters. Can you imagine that? 90% uh, becoming registered voters. And if you would look at the data, uh, you would see that in South Carolina, uh, there were more African-Americans uh, registered to vote than white Americans in South Carolina. And because of that, uh, great things happened. In my state of North Carolina, uh, we didn't have a 50% rate, but we had a large number of black men who became registered voters. And so as they began to vote, they began to do great things. Over the next 30 or 40 years, they were to elect eight African-Americans in South Carolina to the U.S. House of Representatives can you imagine that in, in 1870s, black men coming to Washington, representing a Southern Confederate state, North Carolina produced four African-American members of Congress. Mind you, now they didn't serve at the same time. They were successive office holders, but indeed they did represent our, our states and they did wonderful, wonderful things. But you know what happened? In 1876, there was a presidential election between Rutherford B. Hayes and Sam Tilden a uh, Democrat and a Republican, and it was alleged that it ended up in a tie vote, uh, and it was undecided. And so uh, the, the Electoral College had to resolve the, this dispute. And, and history shows that, that Tilden uh, made a deal with Rutherford B. Hayes, and, and the deal was that if he conceded the election, uh, that federal troops would be pulled out of the South and therefore enable Reconstruction to come to an end. And that's exactly what happened. These two men cut a deal. Uh, Hayes uh, was sworn into office and immediately Hayes ended on Reconstruction. Uh, and so that was 1877. And then the right to vote began to, to be in question. And finally, by the year of 1899, well, let's start in 1898. There was the Wilmington race riot uh, in my state uh, that there were so many black people holding office in, in Wilmington. Wilmington was, was, was a very urban area and black people had, had migrated to Wilmington and began to do great things. They had a newspaper, they built businesses and they were elected to office and they were getting an education. And so in 1898, uh, the Klan came in and burned down the city of Wilmington and, and ran away uh, those black people who were elected to vote. And so finally, in 1900, it became obvious uh, to, to lawmakers in South Carolina and North Carolina and Georgia and elsewhere, it became obvious to them that they were not going to stop black men from voting without doing something really extraordinary. The Klan couldn't stop them. Uh, all of the other stuff that they did, uh, the ending Reconstruction couldn't stop them from voting. 
Uh, they were still electing black legislators and county commissioners and members of Congress. And so in 1900, let me tell you what happened, my friends. In 1900, uh, we got a double whammy. Uh, there was a literacy test enacted. There was a poll tax enacted in 1900. Uh, those laws uh, basically said that in order to, to register to vote, you had to be able to read, write, and comprehend whatever material was placed in front of, uh, in front of the prospective, the, the applicant. You had to satisfy a literacy test. And not only those three things, but you had to, you had to satisfy the registrar, which is a very subjective test. You had to satisfy the registrar that you were literate. And so as a result of that, all black people were taken off of the voter registration roll and required to re-register. And when they re-registered, black people were, were denied and white people were allowed. And for those whites who could not read and write, they benefited from a clause uh, in the law, which we call the grandfather clause. Uh, if your grandfather was registered to vote prior to 1860, uh, then you were exempted from this new law. And so I think you get the story. Uh, black people were disenfranchised beginning in 1900. You had to pay a poll tax uh, in order to vote. And so in the, in the 20th century, uh, black folk in the South essentially did not participate uh, in the electoral process. And so all of our energy, all of our efforts were focused on education. That's why South Carolina State, you know, became such a prominent school. That's why Mars College and the other colleges uh, in the Columbia area became such powerful, powerful institution because the emphasis in the 20th century was on education since they didn't have the ability to participate politically. And so we built great colleges and universities and HBCUs became very prominent in the empowerment of our community. We, we all know that in, in the, by the time the 1960s came around, African-Americans were very, very, uh, very upset with, with their government. They were dissatisfied with the status quo. They, 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 were, they were itching to get uh, equal rights and civil rights and voting rights. And so we all know the Rosa Parks story. I won't go through that. But finally, in, in 1960, uh, a very significant uh, event, just as we are facing a significant event now in 2020 with the presidential election. In 1960, two men were running for president. Uh, we know who they were. John F. Kennedy was the Democratic uh, person, uh, and, and, and he was uh, the favorite candidate uh, for African-Americans, but he was not the the consensus candidate. More African-Americans were inclined to support Kennedy uh, than, than his opponent, uh, Nixon. Uh, but uh, in order to reach out to the African-American community, Kennedy made a promise. Uh, he made a promise. He made a promise to black people that if he was elected president, that he would bring in a civil rights bill and he would dismantle Jim Crow once and forever. And black people believed it. And so the few black people in the South who were registered to vote uh, went out and voted for John F. Kennedy. Uh, and African-Americans in, in the North overwhelmingly voted for Kennedy, not unanimously, but overwhelmingly voted for Kennedy. And when the votes were counted, it, it, uh, it showed that John F. Kennedy became president January 20th of 1961. He was sworn into office. And we were waiting for this civil rights bill. Didn't happen. 62 came. Civil rights bill? No, it didn't happen. Crickets, as we say in Congress. Crickets, another thing. And so 
Martin King and Whitney Young and Roy Wilkins and all of the great leaders of that time, John Lewis, uh, went to went to President Kennedy and said, uh, hey man, we, we supported you, Mr. President, in the 1960 election. You promised us civil rights and you have not delivered. What's the problem? And Kennedy said, sit down, let me talk to you. Here's the problem. I'm trying to get a man on the moon in the next 10 years. Khrushchev is giving me a hard time. He's a Russian dictator. I'm dealing with Guantanamo down in Cuba. I, I, I haven't forgotten my promise, uh, but uh, just be patient with me. And they left the White House in 1962, Bayard Rustin, Ethel Randolph, I could just call the list, Whitney Young. They, they, they decided to form a group and launch a 1963 march on Washington. The date of August 28, 63 was, was set as the launch date for the march. As Kennedy heard about the march, called the, the, the planners in and said, look guys, I haven't forgotten about the civil rights bill, but, but give me some more time. Don't bring 250,000 people to Washington. It's gonna ruin things. And that's when uh, the black leaders had to make a decision uh, whether or not to, uh, to go forward or not go forward. And then Kennedy put out a very uh, weak civil rights bill, but that did not appease uh, our leaders. And so you know what happened on August 28, 63, 250,000 black, white, and brown descended on Washington for a very historic march. And because of that, uh, Kennedy uh, was, uh, his attention began to focus on civil rights. That was August 28, 63. Uh, September 15th of 63, you go back and look at your history. Uh, there was a bombing in Birmingham. Four little girls were murdered. Mr. Clarkson and I have been to that church uh, many, many, many times. We walked up the steps where those little girls were uh, when the bomb went off. Four little girls were, were bombed and killed. And you know what happened? A few weeks later, November 22nd, 1963, Kennedy himself was murdered as he drove in a medic rode in a met, uh, motorcade through the streets of Dallas, Texas. And so the, the, the country was in great turmoil in 1963. And a great man named Lyndon Baines Johnson, who, uh, and the, the Lyndon Johnson Award has been given to Mr. Clyburn, uh, and, and we all know that in Washington, because Lyndon Johnson stepped forward, became president of the United States, and took the reins of power. And oh, did he take the reins of power. He did what John F. Kennedy could not do. Uh, why? Because he had served in the Senate for many years. He was a Southerner. Uh, he grew up poor. He grew up on a Southern farm. Uh, he had a passion for people. Uh, Lyndon Johnson came in and did extraordinary things. And when you get a moment, just look at the great society programs that, that he marshaled in, in in 1965. Well, he also did one other thing. He took control of the Civil Rights Bill and he pushed it, he ramrodded it through the House and Senate and got it signed into law, as I recall, July 2nd uh, of 1964. And so the Civil Rights Bill was passed and Martin King was given a lot of credit for, for the passage, for, for helping to, to, to stimulate and to, to, to motivate the, the president to, to do what he, he should have done in the beginning. Because of that, Martin King, Dr. King, gets the Nobel Peace Prize, can you imagine? Dr. King goes to Oslo, Norway and, and receives a very coveted award, the Nobel Peace Prize. And after receiving the, the prize and donating the money to charity, incidentally, uh, he returned to, to the United States and Lyndon Johnson called him to the White House to thank Dr. King for his tireless work. And as King went to the White House to receive a recognition from President Johnson, 
uh, Johnson ushered him into the Oval Office and said, Dr. King, Dr. King, on behalf of a grateful nation, sir, we thank you for your work. We thank you for your bravery. We thank you for your tenacity in, in getting our attention so that we could pass a civil rights bill. And Dr. King responded to President Johnson in his uh, only a way that he could, thank you, Mr. President, for recognizing me here today. But Mr. President, the work is not done. We now need a Voting Rights Act. And President Johnson turned red and he turned all shades of color and said, Dr. King, Dr. King, Dr. King, Dr. King, please sit down and just talk with me for a minute. You know, I thought you were a PhD. I thought you were a smart man. I thought you understood the South. You, you, you certainly don't expect me to go back to the Senate, the senators who no longer speak to me. Only one senator voted for the voting rights, for the civil rights bill. Only one voted for the civil rights bill. And he was from Texas and he did that just as a courtesy to me, but the other Southern senators didn't vote for it. And now they don't even hardly speak to me don't make me go back and now introduce a Voting Rights Act to guarantee the right to vote. And Dr. King said, that's exactly what I want you to do. And President Johnson said, you're putting me in a real dilemma. Don't put me in this situation. And that's when King got up and as he left the Oval Office, John Lewis, Congressman Lewis, told us this story more times than once. As, as he began to leave the Oval Office, Lyndon Johnson, looked at looked at Martin King and winked his eye at him and said, you know what? Make me do it. Make me do it. I understand where you're coming from. That's when Dr. King went home for Christmas, spent time with his family in Atlanta in January of 1965, launched a brand new movement, this time the Selma to Montgomery March. And that's when John Lewis came into the picture and actually led the march. And please remember, my friends, that the Selma to Montgomery March was about voting rights, getting you and me and our children and our grandchildren the right to vote. And the, you know the rest of the story. The, the Selma to Montgomery March was brutal, uh, but it, it ended up forcing Lyndon Johnson to capitulate and support a voting rights act. And on August 6th of 1965, despite us a fierce filibuster from Southern senators. The bill was enacted into law. I wanted to give you all of that background, all of that background to let you know that it has been a struggle to get and to hold on to the right to vote in this country. And in 2020, this progress could be called into question. And that's why we need a 100% turnout in this election. We are not going political on this phone call. That's not the purpose of it on this podcast. That's not the purpose of it. But I certainly want all of our listeners to understand that the right to vote is in question because of the Voting Rights Act. And I will conclude with this. Because of the Voting Rights Act, we have made monumental progress in this country. Oh, can you imagine? Uh, we, we, there are two provisions actually three provisions of the Voting Rights Act that I will lift up. One is it did away with the literacy test, that thing that was created back in 1900. But secondly, it created a section two, which gave African-American communities the right to bring lawsuits when they, were, when they, they felt that their, their voting rights were being diluted. And we have used that to the fullest. Uh, there was a section five on, in the Voting Rights Act, which, which required the whole state of South Carolina 
the whole state of Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, 40 counties in North Carolina to get all of these jurisdictions to get federal approval before they could change the voting system, before they could redraw the congressional boundaries and legislative boundaries. It was called Section 5. Uh, that was in the Voting Rights Act. Uh, sadly, Section 5 has been suspended. Uh, we don't have time to get in that, into that unless Mr. Clyburn wants to later. Uh, but Section 5 has been su suspended by the Republican Supreme Court. Uh, but Section 2 is, is, is in full bloom. We've used Section 2 to challenge voting systems all across the country. And because of that, we've created a majority minority districts in North Carolina, two in North Carolina, the district that Mr. Clyburn represents in South Carolina, two or three in Georgia, two or three in Florida, uh, one in, in Alabama, one in Mississippi, one in, in, in Louisiana, one in Virginia. We've been able to create majority minority congressional districts. And so that now the numbers in the Congressional Black Caucus reach 55, and there's a high probability after the election it could reach as much as 65. And so I say all of this to, to you to say uh, that we've got to be very vigilant. Uh, we've got to, to take care that, uh, that the right to vote is not taken away from us. There are a lot of forces at work uh, right now in 2020. Some are domestic forces, some are foreign forces. But please believe us when we say that there are forces at work to deny your right to vote. And the way you overcome that is to have a plan. You've got to have a plan to vote. Just like if a hurricane is coming off, off of the ocean, uh, you have an evacuation plan in case it comes into your, your community, you've got to have a plan to vote. A plan to vote in 20, you've got to decide whether you want to vote by mail. Uh, Mr. Clyburn and I like to call it vote from home, where you request a ballot, ballot is sent to you, you send it back, or you take it back to a, to a drop box, or you've got to decide whether you're going to vote in early voting. Most states have early voting, but you want to go early vote. My state has 16 days of early voting, including Sunday. Or you've got to decide whether to do it the old-fashioned way, and that is to get up on election day and, and stand in line six feet apart and cast your vote. Uh, do not uh, assume that the results will be readily available on election night uh, because millions of absentee ballots will be counted and it could take several days in order to get a complete count, especially if it is a close election. So don't despair. Don't despair. Just do your part. Just do your part and make sure that you and everybody that you touch gets involved in this election because we've come too far. Uh, to lose the right to vote. And so thank you, Mr. Clyburn, for the opportunity to share these words. I've given this speech many, many times, but every time I give it, I just give chills, get chills all over my body uh, because I know the struggle that our ancestors faced to get us to this point. So thank you very much. And thank you for going over that. Uh, I, um, uh, I really want that to be laid out. In fact, uh, I'm gonna share this uh, with as many people as I possibly can. But I want to point out a couple of very important things that you mentioned. Let's go back to 1865. Uh, you talked about the Hilden, uh, the, the, uh, the um, uh, compromise uh, of 1865, well, we got the 13th Amendment. Yes. In December of 1865. Now, I put that out because 
Uh, it was August of 1965 that we got the Voting Rights Act, 100 years later. Now, the interesting thing about this is when the 13th Amendment was passed, it freed the slaves. Uh, not the Emancipation Proclamation. There were two Emancipation Proclamations, as you know. Uh, one freed the former slaves in the District of Columbia. Uh, that was 1862. Uh, uh, the um, uh, 1863, January, another uh, Emancipation Proclamation. I'm saying Civil Rights Act, but there are two Emancipation Proclamations. One freed the slaves, former slaves in the District of Columbia. The second one freed the former slaves in the former slave states. But in order for all blacks to be free, we had to have the 13th Amendment. And the 13th Amendment was ratified, I think, December uh, uh, 1865. Now, that ushered in, uh, that gave the right to vote. Now, uh, a repeat of all of that, uh, we, uh, well, that they get freedom. It was later, with the 14th Amendment, that we got equal protection of the law. And then the 15th Amendment is where we got the right to vote. Now, remember, we got the Civil Rights Act in 1964, but having the Civil Rights Act only, uh, a lot of people don't realize this, this that uh, though it outlawed employment discrimination, it only outlawed employment discrimination in the private sector. It didn't outlaw public, uh, employment discrimination in the public sector. In fact, cities and towns and states could still discriminate after the uh, 1964 uh, uh, Civil Rights Act. We didn't outlaw uh, discrimination in the public sector until uh, 18, uh, 1972. Eight years later. Uh, so just because we had the Civil Rights Act doesn't mean we had the right to vote. So then we had to have another act, uh, and that was the Voting Rights Act. Now, one of the things I want to point out here because of how important this vote is, you mentioned the Tilden Hayes Compromise. Uh, when the presidential election was not determinative and got thrown into uh, the electoral or to the House of Representatives because nobody had a majority uh, of the electoral college. Now, a lot of people think that because it got thrown in the House of Representatives, whoever controls the House of Representatives will then determine who gets to be president. That's not true. Uh, Democrats control the House of Representatives. But that's not the way it works. If the, the vote gets thrown into the House of Representatives, each state will caucus among themselves, each state delegation. That means uh, the seven House members from South Carolina 
will caucus and take a vote. And whoever gets the majority of the vote in that caucus gets the vote of that state. Each state gets one vote. That means if the elections were thrown into the House of Representatives, California, with the most representatives in the House, will get only one vote. South Carolina with seven. California got 50-something. South Carolina with seven. We'll get one vote. Delaware has only one member in the House of Representatives. It gets one vote. That one vote in Delaware will be equal to the 50-some-odd votes in California. That's the way it works. So nobody should believe that if this election gets thrown into the House of Representatives, that that's an automatic victory uh, for uh, the group that controls the House of Representatives. That's not the case. Only one vote. That means that all of those problems that came out of the Tilden Hayes Compromise, taking the troops out of the South, starting what became known as Jim Crow, all came about because of one vote. Because when the House voted for president, Reverend B. Hayes won by one vote. One vote. And what's so interesting about that is that all the people thought that the Florida vote was going in one direction and the Florida vote went in the opposite direction of what people thought. So Florida played very prominent in that decision. And it's one vote went for Rutherford B. Hayes. And Hayes became president of the United States and ushered in Jim Crow. So that tells you how important one vote is. So when everybody tells you my one vote doesn't count, Please remind them that we got Jim Crow laws for over half a century. In fact, the impact of that, if you really think about it, those Jim Crow laws, though they may not have been called that uh, in the early part of the 19th century, they were in place until the Supreme Court decision in 1954. It was Brown v. Board of Education that started the dismantling uh, of all of that. So. From 1865 to 1954, that's a long, long time. And all of that came about because of one vote. So everybody's one vote really counts. So I wanted to put that out, uh, the importance of one vote. So let me ask you a question uh, that I want you to expand on a little bit. Uh, you mentioned our late colleague, John Lewis. John Lewis led that march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge uh, in, in March of 1965. Uh, it became known as Bloody Sunday. Uh, and you and I have been back to Selma many, many times with John Lewis uh, commemorating uh, that uh, march. Uh, John Lewis uh, left us earlier this year. Uh, and of course, 
Uh, I bring him up now because we just renamed uh, the Voting Rights Act that we are uh, that we have passed in the House and sent to the Senate to try to cure to cure uh, the problem uh, that Robert said uh, existed with the 1965 uh, Voting Rights Act because that 1965 Voting Rights Act had a formula in it uh, there in Section Four. Now you know this much better than I do, and I'll let you talk about it because uh, I want people to know. Uh, that uh, the real problem uh, with the court decision uh, was throwing out the formula that existed in Section 4 that Section 5 will apply to. So if you don't have a formula, <laughs> then there's nothing for Section 5 to do. They didn't do a thing in Section 5. It's still there. But there's the formula that triggers it is gone. So the Supreme Court, Justice Roberts said, you need to update the formula. He didn't say it was no longer uh, viable or valuable, but it needs to be updated. So we went out. Marsha Fudge, our dear friend, led the hearings all over uh, this country, having hearings on Indian reservations uh, in Hispanic communities, in African-American communities, in uh, white community. She had hearings and they developed a record. And from that record, we developed a new formula. That new formula was put in uh, the Voting Rights Act uh, that we just renamed for John Lewis. And we pass it in the House, Senate to the Senate, and Mitch McConnell is still sitting on it. So I want you to talk a little bit about that formula. Sure, sure. And so people understand exactly what happened with the Voting Rights Act and why, though it's still on the books, it is not effective. Thank you for opening that door, Mr. Clyburn, uh, because this is so, so critically important. And thank you for, for mentioning, again, John Lewis. Uh, all do we miss him in, in the House of Representatives. He was our personal friend and dear friend. Yes, we're naming the legislation after John Lewis. But let's, uh, let's, as a community, let's commemorate John Lewis by, by in our hearts, uh, recognizing November 3rd as John Lewis Memorial Election Day, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, let's let's uh, conduct this election in memory and commemoration of, of a great American, John Lewis. Uh, but the Voting Rights Act has been a, a very, very, very powerful tool that we have used over the years. I told you earlier about Section 2 versus Section 5. Section 2, uh, is a lawsuit. Lawsuits cost millions of dollars. Uh, if you feel that your vote is being diluted and there are certain systems in your community that, that uh, keep African-American communities from electing candidates of their choice, then you have to spend millions of dollars or somebody has got to spend millions of dollars to litigate that election system. It takes weeks, months, years in order to do, to do that. And so it's really cost and time prohibitive. On the other hand, section five was just a reverse. Section, and in section two, the, the, the community has the burden of proving their case. But in section five, if a city or county or state wants to change an election law or practice or procedure or anything, if they just want to move a polling place uh, from first street to second street, uh, that is a voting change. If they want to change the, the date of an election or change, change uh, a, a, a polling procedure, anything has to be pre-cleared 
uh, by the Department of Justice in certain counties, certain states in the United States. And those states were chosen based on past uh, proof of, of racial discrimination in voting. And so that's why all of 50 states were not included. Uh, Wyoming, Wisconsin, Michigan, Oregon, those states were not included because they did not meet the formula that was used to decide who was in and who was out. The formula was, as of November 1st, 1964, were, was, was the voter registration among eligible black voters less than 50%? If the answer to that was yes, you were included. The other part of the test was if less than 50% of African-Americans who were registered to vote actually participated in an election, if less than 50% uh, participated in an election, then yes, that jurisdiction was included. And so when they crunched the numbers and did the calculations, they found out that Southern states did not pass the, ta the, the test, Northern states did pass the test. In my state of North Carolina, it was a hybrid. 40 states failed the test. 60, I mean, 40 counties failed the test, 60 counties passed the test. And so 40 counties in my state were included. And so all of these states were included uh, under Section 5 because of the formula that was created in Section 4. And so those in our, in our society, in our country, who dislike uh, federal intervention uh, in, in elections have challenged Section 5 for years and years and years. Every chance they got, they did something to try to diminish, diminish or discredit Section 5. Uh, but they were always unsuccessful. Once in a while, they would come close to convincing the court uh, to strike it down, but they were always unsuccessful. And here's the thing that a lot of people don't realize, and I'm on the election subcommittee with Chairwoman Marsha Fudge, and we have to go around the country and we have to explain it time and time again, because most people really don't fully understand that the federal government does not have the power under principles of federalism to tell and instruct states how to conduct their elections. Uh, if we did have that power, then there are a lot of problems that we have, we would not have. But we don't have the power. We don't have the power. We don't even have the power in federal elections, even though we have more authority in federal elections than we do in local elections, but we don't have the authority. It is a state decision. However, if there is proof, if there is, is, is demonstrable proof in the record uh, that discrimination exists in voting, then that empowers the federal government to override state authority and to impose certain conditions. And that was the basis for Section 5. There was proof of discrimination among the southern states and 40 states in North Carolina which then empowered the federal government to go in and to impose a Section 5. And so the critics of Section 5 have always challenged Section 5. But then they got smart a few years ago and decided that instead of challenging Section 5, they will challenge Section 4, which is the formula. And they came up with an argument that the formula was outdated, that it was based on November 1st, 1964, and not based, based on 2018, 2019, 2020. Uh, and, and then they had the absurdity to use the election of, of President Barack Obama as a basis for their argument. They said that we live in a post-racial society now and we don't need a Section 4 or Section 5. Well, they litigated it. It went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. 
uh, and in an Alabama case back in 2013, uh, the court uh, dealt us a very severe blow. And here's what Chief Justice Roberts said, and this is exactly what Mr. Clyburn was alluding, alluding to. The court said, Section 5 is okay. It's okay. We still have discrimination in America in voting, but we do have a problem with Section 4. The formula is outdated, and the Supreme Court called upon Congress to update the formula uh, to, 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 to conform with, with what it is on the ground right now in, in the states. And so Congress has, has failed. The Democrats have stepped up, and we have offered legislation to fix Section 4. Uh, it has passed the House of Representatives, and you can imagine where it is now. It's not in the front desk drawer of, of Leader McConnell. It is in the back drawer, if not in the trash can. Uh, the Voting Rights Act uh, revisions have not seen the light of day in the Senate. And so because of that, Section 5 is not being enforced. And that's why uh, so many of the Southern states can get away with voter ID. South Carolina has voter ID, uh, to my regret. There's no need for voter ID in South Carolina. We had it in North Carolina, but an African-American judge struck it down. That's why judges are important. It has been struck down at least temporarily in North Carolina. Uh, let me conclude with this story, and I always like to tell stories, and I was reading Mr. Clyburn's book last week while I tried to have a vacation. Uh, if you have not read his book, I suggest that you take it up. It is very riveting. Uh, in fact, the people that I was vacationing with last week decided to get it on their Kindle. While I was reading the hard book, they were reading it on their device. But let me tell you this story. In 1953, in my home community, Wilson, North Carolina, uh, there were six wards. Uh, Ward three, which is where uh, more, uh, many of the, the uh, more educated African-Americans lived, and I, I don't like the way that sounds, but I think you know what I mean. Uh, those who, who, who were, were more informed uh, had a tendency to live in Ward three. Uh, Ward three was very elongated. It was about three blocks wide and about a half a mile long. Uh, Ward three was half black and half white in, in population. And so my father and my minister, my pastor decided they were going to get into Ward three and do some voter registration. And oh, did they do it. They would have meetings in my, my living room every Saturday morning with, with residents trying to explain to them the literacy tests and what to expect when they go down to try to register to vote. And slowly but surely, African-Americans became registered voters uh, in Ward 3. And so in May of 1953, my daddy decided he wanted to run for the Board of Aldermen from Ward 3. He ran, and guess what? It was a tie vote. The vote was like 187 to 187. It was a tie vote. And in order to break the tie, uh, the law required, it was a very arcane law, but it said that you're to blindfold a child, the child is to reach into a container and pull out a name uh, in a lottery fashion. And this little white girl, blindfolded, reached into the container and chose a name, and it just happened to be my father. And so dad became the first African-American city councilman in, in eastern North Carolina, and I guess the fourth in the entire state uh, since Reconstruction. And so that was an Obama moment, if you would. Oh, was it? Two years later, 1955, it was time for re-election, two-year terms. Uh, he ran for re-election. Nobody thought he would win for Ward 3. But he formed a very interesting coalition with a white council member who was running for mayor. Very interesting uh, coalition. Don't have time to develop it, but it was interesting. Uh, but they cut a deal with each other, and Dad won re-election in 1955. Again, an Obama moment. 
And that's when the guy running for mayor who had been part of the deal decided that he wanted to make my father the chairman of the finance committee. In other words, handling the money. That's like being chairman of the Ways and Means Committee in Congress. It was a big deal. And because of that, it was too much uh, for the power structure to accept. 1957 comes along. My family is away on a family vacation. And while we're out of town, the council for, calls an emergency meeting to change the election system from a ward system or a district system to an at-large system. And because of that, the, the purpose of it was to submerge African-American voters in Ward 3 into a very large area. And because of that, they would not have any influence at all in the electoral outcome. And that's what happened. That's what happened. They changed to at-large elections. And my dad, uh, needless to say, came in last place. Uh, he was very upset about that. I was 10 years old at the time. Remember it so well. 59 came along. My pastor ran. Uh, he lost the election. Not only did you, did you have to run at large, but there was an anti-single shot provision, which means you couldn't single shot vote uh, for a single candidate. And because of that, the African-American community was completely disenfranchised. I give you that to say that had we had a Section 5, then that change in those changes in election procedure would have needed pre-clearance from the Department of Justice, and it would have never happened. Had it not happened, then Dad would have continued on the city council, and we would have had representation for, for years in the future. Section 5 has been very important. The Supreme Court has crippled uh, Section 5 by invalidating Section 4. But I hope and pray that whoever is the majority in the Senate uh, in 2021, whoever is the majority in the House in 2021, whoever is sitting in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, I hope and pray that they will see, see the value in reenacting a new formula, which, which we already have. We have the formula. It just needs to be passed into law. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for that. Um, a couple of things I want to talk about. We've given a good history here today, uh, the impact of that history on where we are today. The question we now have is, how do we maximize the turnout of voters on election day, irrespective of how they're going to vote? We aren't here to tell them how to vote. We'll do that uh, in a separate venue. But the mechanics of voting, we have got to make sure that people exercise their right to vote. Now, I think you said that in North Carolina, you have 16 days that you can have early voting and including Sunday, that's a good thing. Here in South Carolina, we only, we have the whole month of October. We don't call it early voting. We call it absentee voting. Uh, so what we have done here in South Carolina uh, we did it for the presidential election, uh, uh, presidential primary on uh, February 29th. And the Senate last week uh, it decided to do that for the general election. And that is, you don't have to have a reason. Because of COVID-19, everybody can vote absentee during the entire month of October. Mm -hmm. Now, you have to register to vote by 30 days out. So since no, uh, uh, November 3rd, 
is election day, people have until October 3rd to register. But once you register, you've got the entire month of October, beginning October 5th, because October 5th is a Monday. Uh, the fourth of the third is a Saturday, fourth Sunday, but the fifth is on Monday. You can start voting absentee for any reason. Now, I say that Senate just passed it, the House has not passed it, they're coming back on the 15th, and they say they're going to pass on the 15th. So I feel relatively sure that if you're in South Carolina, you can vote absentee beginning October 5th and even if they don't change it there's 16 re 17 reasons in the law right now that you can use to vote absentee one of them is if you have to work on election day and elect election day is not a national holiday so people have to work on election day you can vote absentee it is say whether or not you got to vote all day work all day but if you have to work on election day, you can vote absentee. If you're going to be out of town on vacation, if you're going to be away in school, whatever it is, you can look at those the, the law and you can see, I say that 95% of everybody in South Carolina can find one reason, at least one reason, among those 17, to vote absentee. So what we're saying to people this year, make October election month. November 3rd, election day. October election month. 2020, the John R. Lewis election year. That's what we are pushing. And I hope uh, that listeners will do that everywhere. Make October election month. Because we want people to vote early in person. Because you and I both know, just like everybody should know, uh, that the postal Don't service yeah. Yeah. is suspect. The election service, I mean, the, the postal service is suspect. We know that there are methods. Uh, being used that could very well delay uh, us ever knowing uh, for weeks who those absentee mail-in votes will go to. So we're asking people to vote early in person. Uh, and so uh, every state can get assistance to do that. In the CARES Act, which is now law, uh, we made available money uh, for states to use uh, to have drop boxes, keep, have satellite voting places so that you can socially distance uh, and still vote. You make your request for an absentee ballot. When you get it, don't answer the door for anybody asking for your ballot, as they did in the 9th Congressional District of North Carolina last time. Uh, two years ago, don't know, call your grandchildren, call your children, call your pastor, call your friends if you need assistance. Get your ballot, but don't put it in the mail. Uh, take it in person. 
and we are going to have uh, people available to help drive you back uh, to, to put your uh, ballot in place in person beyond advising anybody to mail it. Now, you can request that absentee ballot all the way up until the day, uh, until I think October the 30th. Uh, but we don't want you to do that. We want you to get the ballot, fill it out, and deposit it either in a satellite place or whatever the designated place is. And if it's too far for you to walk, we'll help you get there. So I don't know what you're going to do in North Carolina. But that's what we're yeah, trying to yeah. do yeah. here in South Carolina. Well, Mr. Clavin, this is a powerful, powerful way to end this podcast because there's nothing more important in our life, important in our life right now than to have a 100% turnout in this election. It used to be a song years ago that said 99 won't do. We've got to have a 100% turnout. And you know, in the African-American community, we depend on organizations. I don't know how they do it uh, across town, but we depend on organizations. We depend on the church. We depend on the Masonic Lodges, the Eastern Stars, the Elk. We depend on the Divine Nine, the sororities, the fraternities. We depend on organizations, alumni associations, and the rest. We depend on those. But you know, every two years, we, we hear from these organizations that they are fearful of getting involved in the political process because they might violate the 501c3 law. And I want to put that to rest. Uh, I am considered in the Congressional Black Caucus as the resident expert on this subject. Uh, I was a former judge in, in another life for many years. I went across the country uh, in 2012 and 2016 giving lectures on this. And I'll give it to you in a, in a nutshell. Churches and pastors can do anything they want to do politically uh, during an election cycle. The only exception, the only thing that they have to be careful about is that the pastor cannot endorse a candidate or a political party from the pulpit using church resources. The same thing with the Basilis of Omega Psi Phi. Same thing with the heads of the Grand Master of the Masons. The same thing applies there, the same logic. You cannot do it, it you cannot endorse or oppose in your official capacity. That's the only thing the law prohibits. You cannot use church resources or, or large resources or fraternity sorority resources. You cannot do a mailing in the name of Delta Sigma Theta uh, of supporting a candidate, supporting a candidate. That would be illegal. But everything else is, is certainly fair and expected. So a church can do an email. They can do a mailing. They can talk about the importance of the election. They can explain what candidates are on the ballot. They can explain the hours of operation. They can explain the dates that the polling places will be open. They can do everything except endorse a candidate. But let me tell you, when that pastor steps off of the church grounds, uh, that pastor can endorse a candidate in her individual capacity, the, the, the pastor can do it as an individual, not as a representative of the church. And so I had to get that out there because uh, that sometimes is an obstacle that we face in these elections. But please, ma'am, please, sir, understand that 501c3 organizations can participate in the political process through voter education, voter engagement. You can transport people to the polls. You just can't tell them who to vote for. You can do it as an individual. You can use your personal car. 
But if you use in a church van as an example, uh, you cannot in the church van say that that uh, Covenant Baptist Church uh, wants you to vote for John Doe, and that would cross the line. So please, please be involved. Please consider a Souls to the Polls event, fraternities to the polls, Divine Nine to the polls, Masons to the polls, uh, barbers and beauticians to the polls. Uh, create a specialized day uh, during the, the absentee voting period or the early voting period create a designated day and say, okay, next Thursday is gonna be Delta Thursday. And we want all the Deltas in South Carolina, all the Deltas in Georgia, North Carolina, we want all the Deltas to assemble that day and go to the polls. And we're gonna make a powerful statement that we have just voted. I think you get the, uh, the idea. We've gotta be dramatic. Uh, we've gotta be, 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 we've gotta be powerful. We have to be, be vocal, we have to be verbal. Uh, and visual, we've got to make sure that the word gets out to every single person that failure to vote is a failure to our ancestors and the struggle that we've had uh, down through the years. And so I wanna thank you, Mr. Clyburn, uh, for your friendship. I wanna thank you for your leadership. Uh, I, I just don't know if, if people fully, I know they know that you are a top leader uh, in the Congress, but I, I'm not sure they can fully, fully 100% appreciate the leadership that you have demonstrated uh, not just to the Congressional Black Caucus, but demonstrated to America over the last 25 plus years that you have been in Congress. Uh, Jim Clyburn gets the job done. He does not seek the credit. Uh, he works behind the scenes so often. Uh, he comes up with ideas that are absolutely brilliant. We, in fact, we get jealous that we didn't think of it first. He comes up with wonderful ideas that we all support and we unite. We don't get everything passed. Uh, but we get so much of it passed. Sometimes it's buried in the legislation, but it's there. He has done so much for so many for so long. And I'm going to do something that I haven't done in a long time. And I'm going to tell him I love it. I love you, Jim Clyburn. Thank you. Love it too, my man. Thank you yeah. so much. Thank, thank you, you uh, for being with us today. Uh, thank you for the contributions you make uh, to the social order. Uh, the history you give today uh, is very, very valuable. We're going to share it with as many people as we possibly can. And I want to say uh, to all of our listeners, uh, in addition to everything you heard from GK, let's start now to looking at the voter rolls in the precincts. Get your church, your sorority, your fraternity, your Masonic group to adopt precincts. That's what we're doing in South Carolina. We're asking groups to just adopt precinct number one. Now, I live in the Greenview precinct. I vote in the Santee precinct. And we're gonna adopt precincts. I've just ordered last night, uh, the uh, whole list of precincts by street address. And we're gonna assign them uh, to people. Uh, say these people on this street in this precinct, this, these are the people who are registered. Uh, call them, stop by their house, leave a note on the door uh, to be socially distanced. Make sure that you get them to vote. We're going to turn out the vote this time, hopefully, uh, as big as one we've ever had uh, in this country, because I'll tell you, our country is at a crossroads. Is at a crossroads. Uh, this democracy 
is under threat. We ought not be suppressed. As GK said, talked about a song we once had. Well, you know, I was born and raised in the Postage. And I used to hear that song all the time. 99 and a half GK won't do. Trying to make a hundred. That was a song uh, the members of my dad's church used to sing a lot. So I want to say to all the voters, 99 and a half won't do. we got to make a hundred. Thank you all so much for being with us. See you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of Clyburn Chronicles. If you enjoyed this episode, please let us know by leaving a comment. And don't forget to subscribe to my show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Congressman Jim Clyburn.